Well, in the opening verses of Romans 5, Paul connects this new section of Romans to everything that went before it. So we'll be looking at Romans 5 through 8 over the next seven weeks, and they're not an isolated text of scripture, but they are a cohesive unit of text. Paul begins with the word, therefore. Therefore um, is a word that professors and pastors like to joke about. Whenever it shows up in a text, we like to say, if you ever see the word therefore, you need to figure out what the word therefore is there for. It's silly, but it actually is really helpful because it points you back to what came before it. You want to understand the connection. Paul is using this word, and he opens 5 verse 1, connecting it to everything that he said before. In these opening chapters, chapters 1 through 4, Paul argued that all people, regardless of their nationality or social status or ethnicity, are alienated from God because of sin. In these opening chapters, he's argued that they are separated from God because of sin. Uh, and he describes the sin problem in three ways. He says that they've been taken captive by the cosmic power of sin. Sin with an uppercase S. More than that, they've become complicit with sin in rebellion against God as they commit sin and give their affections and their allegiances to someone and something other than God. And as a result, every human person has been corrupted by sin, and they lack the glory with which God originally created them. So the sin problem is a matter of captivity to sin, complicity with sin through our commission of sin, and then finally a corruption that evidences our lack of participation in the glory of God. That's our sin problem. But then Paul goes on to make clear that there's no way to solve the sin problem other than the salvation solution offered through Jesus alone. Jesus, as the king, the messianic king and suffering servant, came to bear both our sin and God's righteous judgment on it. And he did so in order to provide the kind of salvation that answers each aspect of the sin problem. He brings about redemption or release, freeing us from our captivity to sin. Where we've been complicit in sin, Jesus secures forgiveness and rescue from that complicity. He offers us a pardon and reconciliation with God. And then, where there is corruption and lack of glory because of sin's tainting of our lives, Jesus initiates the formation of righteousness within us. He offers us a renewal, or what we might call a righteousification, that happens progressively as we're transformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. When Paul opens verse 1 with the word, therefore, that's what he's pointing back to this threefold sin problem, and the threefold salvation solution. And then in verses 1 and 2, he just restates that salvation in different terms. Isn't it a blessing that Paul gives us multiple ways of saying the same thing so that we can grab on to the reality of our salvation? He restates these aspects of our salvation or justification by saying this. He says that we have peace with God. That's our reconciliation and restoration. He says that we have free access to grace in which we stand. That's redemption and re release from captivity to sin. 
and we have renewal and righteousification in the future sharing in God's glory. Now, initially, I thought about taking an entire sermon just to talk about these realities. But instead, I last night recorded a 20-minute podcast essentially giving a mini-sermon, and I would encourage you to go back to that and reflect on everything that we've already covered. Because I think Paul's main burden in these verses is not to just rehash everything that he said, but to introduce a new topic, the topic of the righteous who are suffering. We are now righteous. We're justified in Christ, yet there is suffering. And I want us to focus on that idea. Because when we read these two verses, and really all of Romans 1 through 4, we can feel deeply encouraged when we realize that our greatest problem of sin has been solved entirely through Jesus Christ as we identify with him through faith. That's good news. And it remains good news until it doesn't feel like good news anymore. Until the one problem of our suffering pops up. If our sin problem has been taken care of, we might ask, why are we experiencing hardship and suffering? If God is no longer upset with us, if his wrath has really been satisfied, then why do we face so many problems? If we've been justified, why are we in pain? Why do the righteous suffer? We interpret our experiencing of suffering as proof that God is either not loving and that we haven't actually become his friends. We haven't been reconciled to him, or it looks like proof that God hasn't actually done anything to deal with our sin problem. Maybe he just isn't powerful enough to eradicate the sin and the evil that keeps popping up in our life. Maybe his salvation isn't big enough to take care of the hardship in the world. I think these are the kinds of questions that Paul anticipates and addresses in these verses. And really, he does so in all of Romans 5 through 8, but especially here and at the end of Romans 8. And these are the kind of questions that I want us to consider this morning as we think about the suffering of the righteous. How is it that Christians can be assured of God's love and salvation when we're still facing suffering? In drawing from Romans 5, 1 through 11, I basically have three points. Though, as you might expect, there are some subpoints along the way, so you'll have to pay attention. First, Christians experience suffering. It's a reality. Salvation will not remove your suffering. Second, Christians can experience suffering differently than non-Christians. Although our salvation does not eliminate suffering, it does radically transform our experience and the result of it. Then third, Christians do not experience suffering alone because God joins us in our suffering through the Holy Spirit. These are the three ideas I want to consider with you this morning. First, Christians experience suffering. Christians experience suffering. I didn't always believe this, and I don't think a lot of Christians do either. If you grew up like I did, like a lot of other people, you probably grew up thinking that hardship and suffering and affliction was abnormal, at least for good Christians. You might even have believed that if someone was experiencing hardship or affliction or suffering, it was somehow their fault. As one guy puts it, maybe they were lazy or unintelligent 
or just simply bad Christians, and they brought this kind of hardship and suffering on themselves. Maybe you thought that only happened to the outliers, the not-so-great Christians or the ungodly. Maybe you thought that if you were a good Christian, then nothing bad would ever happen to you. No divorce would show up in your family. Nothing that could hardly be described as a mental health category would show up in your life. Nothing like losing your home to the bank or experiencing financial hardship, no depression, no anxiety, no trauma, no miscarriages, nothing. Maybe you've believed that because you grew up as a Christian and that if you were just godly enough, then you'd have a perfect life with a perfect family in a perfect suburban neighborhood. For many, that's what the message of Christianity sounds like. But then if you're like me, as you got older, you started to realize that the righteous actually do suffer. That affliction, depression, dysfunctional families are maybe more the norm than you once thought. And, and maybe, just maybe, the reason that you realize this is because that hardship showed up at your front door and you experienced it. Because the depression and the anxiety, the dysfunctional family, the inability to make sense of why life is even worth living at all came for you. As I know many of you here, many of you have experienced deep suffering. And you know that. You've been disenchanted from the lie that Christianity will remove suffering from your life. I think that's why Paul brings this up. Because our salvation is glorious, but Christians will still experience suffering. Without missing a beat after that triumphant declaration of our salvation in Christ, Paul tells the truth. He tells the truth about Christianity and the truth about life in this world. In this life, there is suffering. And Jesus didn't die so that you wouldn't suffer. Nearly every organization and institution and company in this world will lie to you about this. They'll lie to you about suffering. They'll tell you that if you just buy their product or follow their lifestyle plan or donate enough money to their charity, then your life will be pretty and perfect and nothing will go wrong. But Paul is more honest than that. And we need to be too. Whether you become a Christian or not, whether you are a Christian or not, your life will be touched by suffering, whether it's yours or someone you care deeply about. Suffering will come for you. So one lesson that I think we can learn from Paul so closely connecting the reality of suffering to our salvation is that the Christian life is not about butterflies and rainbows. It's not about looking perfect and always being happy and having a good time. And when someone asks you how your week went, saying, it was great. Becoming a follower of Jesus isn't about getting rich or having the perfect family with adorable and obedient little kids who always do everything you say and become prodigies of some sort. It's not about getting every promotion and it's not about becoming popular. You might experience some of those things, but you won't experience that because you're a Christian. Paul's picture of salvation in the Christian life is more authentic and real than that. And it explains life as we actually experience it. Because Christian discipleship is costly and it includes suffering. 
At this point, I want to make a brief comment about a song that we just sang, a song I requested that we sing today. It is well with my soul. Anytime that song is sung in a church, the singing is somehow louder and more deeply felt because I think there is a right sense in which we know, regardless of the suffering we face, it is well with our souls. But I want to take a moment here to remind you that any truth that we learn the rest of the sermon about suffering does not mean that the suffering isn't real and we shouldn't pretend as if it never happened. If you read the history of Horatio Spafford, the guy who wrote this song, you will learn that he related to his wife in such a way that he did not allow her to live as if the suffering was real. And Dwight Moody ended up having to visit her in deep depression because she had never dealt with that true hardship that she faced in losing children and then getting back and losing more children. And eventually, these people became leaders of a cult in Jerusalem living on a commune. They, they did not deal with suffering in the biblical way that speaks honestly about it, even as we say that there's more than the pain. So as you sing that song and as you experience suffering, is it, and even as you hear me preach the rest of this sermon where I'm going to try to convince you that you can rejoice when you come to suffering, that doesn't mean that we pretend as if it never happened. If you do, you're, you're lying. It's not as honest and authentic as Paul is. Think a second lesson that we can learn from Paul's close connection between suffering and salvation here is that suffering as a part of the Christian life is somewhat normal. That means that you are not alone when you're suffering. Regardless of the category of suffering and hardship and affliction that you're facing, you are not facing it alone because people around you are experiencing some kind of suffering as well. If you are a Christian, you are not alone in your suffering. Instead, you're part of a community of people who also suffer, but more than that, who have been instructed both to weep with the sorrowful and to celebrate with the rejoicing. When Christ saved you and added you to his people, he gave a declaration that you are not your own. You are not your own, and therefore your suffering is not your own. You belong to a community of Christians who are fellow sufferers and fellow rejoicers. So you don't need to hide your hardships. You don't need to hide your suffering. For many of you, it's hard to share that. Sometimes there's good reason for it. But I want to suggest to you that God didn't make you to stuff that down inside of you and not talk to anybody except perhaps a therapist somewhere. God gave you a community of saints that will do life with you and weep with you and support you. And yes, they'll even say the wrong thing to you sometimes and you'll have to forgive them, but they're there for you. So as you're part of this church, don't hide your suffering. I want to recommend two books to you that might help with this. The first is Side by Side, and the second is a book called On Getting Out of Bed, and both are filled with deep and wise counsel. I'm so glad that many in our congregation have read or are reading Ed Welch's book Side by Side. This is like a step-by-step -step manual 
both for learning how to share your suffering with others and being there to share in their suffering. It's simple. It's easy to read. If you're a man, show up to the men's discussion group and participate in this. If you can't make it to a group, grab the book, read it, listen to it, and then grab someone and talk about it. And maybe this will be an occasion where you can share your suffering and where you might make yourself someone who can have suffering shared with them. I also want to recommend on getting out of bed. This book is directed for those who are so deep in suffering that it just doesn't seem like they can get out of bed or do the next thing. It's short. It's a personal reflection. It's deeply moving and encouraging. But it's also for those who in this room might feel like, I've never had anything hard in my life. And if other people do, they just need to get over it. This book will help you become more compassionate. It's free if you live in Dakota County through Hoopla. Both of them are. You can access them. Equip yourself to be the kind of Christian who speaks truly about suffering and relates well to others who are suffering. So if the first truth that we learn is that Christians suffer, Christians will experience suffering. But then number two, we learn from Paul that Christians experience suffering differently, whether we're conscious of it or not. And I hope that this section of the sermon will help you become conscious of how you can experience suffering differently. Here I'm drawing from Romans 5, 3, and 4, then verses 6 through 11. Although we know that salvation does not eliminate our suffering, it does transform the experience of the Christian's suffering. We experience suffering differently because we're united in Christ by faith, because we're standing in grace and we're at peace with God. So when we read Romans 5, 3, and we read this line of boasting in our afflictions, I don't particularly like that rendering because it makes it sound like our salvation includes taking pride in how hard we've had it or something like that. Um, Paul is not saying whenever someone talks about their hardship, you should one-up them and boast about how you've had it harder. That's asinine. But people do it. We're inclined to do it because we're sinful. Paul does not want you to one-up other people in... um, tried to boast about how hard you've had it. I, I think it's better rendered in the New Living Translation in their interpretive decision here when they say we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. In other words, the Christian joy in their salvation is not spoiled when you run into suffering. Your Christian salvation and joy in it is not spoiled when you run into problems and trials. Instead, your joy in your salvation can persist, even in the darkest valleys of life. And here Paul sounds very much like James in James 1, where he writes that we ought to consider it a great joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. The Christian perspective on trials is to speak truly about them. They are hard. Suffering is not what it's supposed to be. While at the same time, considering that trial an opportunity for joy, not allowing the suffering to spoil your joy in Christ. Christians can rejoice even when they run into problems and trials because of what God is doing in the trial, in the hardship, in the suffering. In these verses, Paul wants us to think about what God is doing. 
He wants to get you out of your own head and your own experience to see a God's eye view on it so you can interpret your suffering differently. What God is doing is using the fires of suffering in a refining way. He's working to bring out a stronger Christian who has confidence in the saving power of God through Christ alone. Peter, James, and John are all doing the same thing when they use similar language here, even though they have slight variations in the progression. But they're all saying that when you're put into a hardship, you're put in a spot where you've just got to endure. You can't give up. And when you make it through that hardship, when you endure it, you come to realize that you can actually make it through hard things. You can actually make it through hard things. And when you realize that you're the kind of person who can get through hard things and you can live and your life might even be better, then you have hope. You have hope when the next hardship faces you. At that realization, you have what the Christian Standard Bible calls proven character. You've proven that you can endure affliction and suffering and come out better on the other side. And as a result, instead of living in fear of whatever bad thing might happen to you, you can press forward with joy and confident expectation that you'll make it through the hardship and you'll be even better off afterward. So here's the logic. Affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope that equips you to face hardship, whatever it might be. Now, I think that any non-Christian could hear what I say and say, that's true for me too. It was true for me when I graduated high school and got into college and looked at my heavy workload. And, and then I remembered that as a freshman in high school, I thought my workload was crazy. But by the time I got to being a senior in high school, I was making fun of the freshman for thinking it was hard. I, I endured and I got better and I grew and developed. Or when I was an athlete, I played a tough game and I got some losses, but those losses made me a better athlete. Isn't this just logical? And on the one hand, I want to say it is logical and God made the world that way and you're participating in his common grace. And instead of using that as a reason to reject Christian teaching on suffering and God's work in it, it actually should be the proof to you that God is actually doing something. He's ordered the world in a rational, workable way and you're living it, whether you want to admit it or not. But there are still, I think, differences between Christian suffering in that logic of the way God made the universe of the non-Christian who gets better through hardship as well. And I want to point three out. First, when Christians experience suffering, they can be confident in their hardship that God is for them and not against them. The non-Christian does not have this assurance. One of the main reasons, well, what, one of the main differences between a Christian going through a hardship and the non-Christian going through a hardship is the Christian can always say, God is for me in this. This suffering in my life is not God punishing me. It's not God's wrath on me. The non-Christian has no basis to say that because they have not been united to Christ and they have not appropriated Jesus' sacrifice for them. Many people, when they're talking about the bad things out there, and truly bad things that happen to them. Those don't just happen to non-Christians, we've already discovered. They also happen to Christians. Tragic things. Rape, child abuse, murder, other things that I can't even talk about 
in public here, things that you've seen in the news, there are truly awful things that happen out there. And it happens to the justified and the non-justified alike, to the righteous and the unrighteous, to the Christian and the non-Christian. And the non-Christian must always have humming in the background of their conscience, this is God's wrath. This is God punishing me. This is God against me. That perspective is reflected in a popular TV show called The Office, where this guy, Toby Flenderson, is afraid to enter into a church building to attend a co-worker's wedding because of his conflicted relationship with God. He's had a divorce, doesn't have a great relationship with his co-workers, no one seems to like him. He thinks back on the time when he was once a Catholic seminary student and he dropped out because he wanted to marry the girl who eventually divorced him. And as he stands in front of the entry to the church, he says to God, why do you always got to be so mean to me? Think that's what every non-Christian has to say if they acknowledge that God exists when they look at their suffering. But I also wonder, is that you? Is that how you feel? When you look at the hard things in your life, is your gut instinct, God, why do you have to be so mean to me? But what Paul gives us here is a gift that assures you that God is not being mean to you in your suffering. Your hardship is not a signal that God is against you. In 5.1, Paul made clear that we have peace with God because of our suffering objective relational peace, not necessarily that um, subjective sense of serenity and calm. That's peaceful feelings. With God, we have peace. We're now his friend. He's for us and he's not against us. God is never going to punish you because Christ bore the full punishment for your sin on the cross, never again to have it inflicted on you. Christians can be confident of God's love for them because even in our suffering, God objectively proved his love by offering a costly salvation that removes any present wrath and all future wrath because of our sin. So Paul addresses Christians and tells them that Christ has absorbed the wrath of God. He's not punishing you. He's for you in your suffering. And this is how the argument goes in verses 6 through 11. He says that for the most part, like generally speaking, no one is willing to die for somebody else. It's really rare that you see that. And certainly no one's willing to die for a criminal. If there's a criminal facing the death penalty, a really righteous individual is not going to say, kill me instead. I'll take the punishment for his guilt. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He bore the death penalty for us. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the kind of love that was proved for us. But sometimes we doubt that God loves us still. So Paul goes on to say, how much more than in his life, because Christ raised from the dead, will he continue to unite us to God in relationship, friendship, and reconciliation. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose and he secured that peace with God forever. We have objective proof that God loves us and that he's for us because of his death on our behalf. 
So the first difference between Christians and non-Christians going through similar trial, going through similar things, is that Christians can be confident that God is for them in their hardship. He's not against them, and there's no possibility that the suffering is a punishment from God or an expression of his wrath. And the grounds for that confidence is the objective proof of God's love in the death of Jesus. I want to tell you, when you are in the middle of deep pain, you are called to love the God who loved you. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, Corinthians 13 when he describes true love, true love believes all things. And when, it, when you don't feel like God loves you, when you don't feel like he's for you, loving God looks like believing him, believing that he actually loves you. Second, Christian suffering is different than non-Christian suffering in this way. Christians experience a kind of transformation that goes beyond mere personal improvement or self-development to actual Christ-likeness. So when we talk about the transforming power of our suffering, we're not just talking about the kind of self-improvement that any non-Christian can experience. We're talking about a deep change of who we are that instills and encourages and cultivates the righteousness of God in us. We're not talking about just becoming the best edition of yourself or emotionally stronger or having higher self-esteem. We're talking about recovering the glory of God in you that you were originally intended to display. Paul says that through our suffering, we have hope. And that word hope links back to his opening comment in verse 1, that Christians have hope in the glory of God. Or as the New Living Translation rightly renders it, we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. In other words, the transformation that comes through your trial is a transformation of participation in God's glory. He is glorifying you through your hardship. That's a transformation that extends beyond self-improvement. It's a making you like God and causing you to share in his glory. Isn't that weird? It's normal for us to think, I ought to glorify God, but do you realize that God is glorifying you through your suffering? Think about that. The transformation that will eventuate in what theologians call your glorification happens primarily through your hardship and suffering. And that's why we can have joy. Because for the Christian, joy and hardship is about taking on the new self, taking on Christ, being conformed to his image, and growing from one degree of righteousness to another. We sometimes call that sanctification. This is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he describes our participation in the glory of the Lord, our glorification as our transformation into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And the glorification plan that God has for you is a road of suffering and hardship. It's working out our salvation. So part of our 
participation in that transforming work is faithfully enduring suffering. And here's the logic of it. Every trial is an inbreaking of death into your life. And every time you persevere through it, we participate in a mini resurrection where we see new resurrection life overcoming that death of suffering as we see more of Christ being formed in us. And as we see that happen time and time again, we gain this confident expectation that when we face death in its final form, there won't just be a mini resurrection, but a full resurrection to final glorification so that we look like our Savior forever. That's the joy that is set before us that allows us to suffer faithfully, come what may. Third, there's a third difference between Christian and non-Christian suffering. And the third difference is simply that Christians can embrace suffering because of everything that we just learned as part of their calling. We can endure hardship and suffering as part of our calling in imitation of Christ and as a participation in his own suffering. When you suffer, your suffering becomes a suffering in and with Christ. Non-Christians cannot say that. They do not have a Christ-shaped picture to their suffering. What I'm trying to say here is that Christians are called to look like Jesus. And looking like Jesus takes, involves taking on the same form of life that Jesus took on. And Jesus' form of life was shaped by the cross. It was a cross-form life, what theologians call the cruciform life. We all have a calling to a cruciform life. giving up on ourselves, giving up ourselves, bearing through suffering, suffering with faithfulness, walking in the footsteps of our Savior. Because if our Lord and King was not exempt from suffering, then neither are his servants. Part of our calling is to take on the cruciform life. When we're united to Christ, we're united to him in his death, in his cruciform life. But as Paul tells us in verse 11, it's not just his death that changes our suffering, it's also his life. So our calling is one to the cruciform life, but it's also one to resurrection, where we participate in the life of God through our suffering. So for that reason, we're not called only to the cruciform life, but to live in his resurrection. There's one theologian I really like right now who combines the cruciform life that we're called to with the resurrection life that we're called to, and he calls it creatively resurrectional cruciformity or transformational participation in the life of Christ. It's not all suffering. We admit there is suffering, but because of that suffering and through it, and because Jesus suffered and came through that suffering, there's also glory and life. So we don't live in a mopey way, even as we speak honestly about our suffering. That's not all there is. We can actually rejoice. We can participate in the life of God because Jesus proved it, that he can suffer and then comes glory, that he can be afflicted and then comes honor, that he can taste of death and then experience an even better form of life. We take on a resurrectional cruciformity in our life. So every Sunday, when you show up at Resurrection Church and you see that cross in the corner, remember your calling to a resurrectional, cruciform life where we speak truly about suffering, but we can also rejoice in the life that comes through it. 
All right, those are the three ways it's different. Um, so I said the first truth that we needed to consider is that Christians actually experience suffering. Second, that Christians can experience suffering differently than non-Christians and that God is actually doing something in your suffering, whether you're aware, aware of it or not. But then briefly, and I think maybe even most importantly, Christians don't experience suffering alone. Now, I already mentioned that Christians don't experience suffering alone because we're in a community of faith of other sufferers. What Paul shares here is even more glorious than that. And it's even more important than that. I just want to give it to you quickly. And, and I want you to leave thinking about it. In verse 5, Paul teaches us that God himself is lovingly present with us in our suffering. God meets you in your suffering with the result that your suffering becomes his suffering. God is never distant or disaffected by the hardships that you're facing. He's deeply touched by it because he enters it. We know in the ancient past he entered it in the death of Jesus. But by his Holy Spirit, he enters into every hardship you experience by entering into you, by entering into your life. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's what we mean when we sang earlier this morning in that song, Be Thou My Vision. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall. What we're saying is that God's heart has entered into our heart. That God himself in the Holy Spirit has entered into you. So that every hardship you face is not just a hardship that you face, but a hardship that God faces with you. That God feels with you, so that when there's no one else in your life who can understand what you're going through, when, when the deep affliction that you have, you don't even have the words to say for anyone to resonate with, when it's so deep and debilitating that you don't think you can even get out of bed, you don't know how to express it, God knows and he's with you. And the reason you can be faithful is because by his presence, through the Holy Spirit, who is our great comforter and counselor, you will eventually gain the wisdom you need to know how to respond to that suffering, and you will gain the comfort that no one else can offer. Because God pours out his love through the Holy Spirit. So whenever you doubt the objective love of God, know that God joins with you in your suffering that because he enters into it with you, there is not one thing, not life, nor death, nor any other thing that can separate you from the love of God because his love is always with you in the Holy Spirit. Let's speak truly about suffering. Let's be honest with other people and fold them into our lives. Let's enter into the resurrectional cruciformity so that our suffering will produce that resurrection life. But at the end of the day, when everything else seems dark, when everything else is lost, assure yourself of God's love because he's with you in the Holy Spirit, whatever you face. Let's thank God for this together. Let's suffer well and let's do it together. God, we thank you that you have a plan for our hardships, that you have made a way 
for us to be at peace with you, that you have made a way to turn any evil that happens to us into our good and ultimately into our glorification and for the glory of your name. We are unspeakably grateful for your presence and your love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. For any here who have not received you, would you draw them to yourself? For all of us here who may doubt at times the presence of your spirit and your love in, your li- in our lives, would you make your spirit known to us? And would you assure us of that love? Would you draw us ever closer? Would you guide us through the spirit, our great counselor and comforter and friend? In Christ we pray, amen.